Well, let's take our Bibles again this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we are working on this text on verses between verses 1 and 11. So I'm going to read the full 11 verses, and then our text will actually be verses 5 to 11 this morning. Listen to God's inerrant word. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they who preach, so we preach, and so you believed. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Bow with me as we pray before we tackle this text here this morning. Father in heaven, again, I pray that you will speak to us through your word. I pray that you will again prepare our hearts to hear. We thank you for giving us your word in plain English that we can understand. And so I pray that we would uh, be faithful to what we know. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted, uh, build us up where we need to be convicted, and convince us where we need to be convinced so that we may be more conformed to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray that you will use your word as you see fit. Protected, I pray. May only what is true and right be heard in your name. Amen. Well, we've been started this chapter, uh, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, and it, it is a chapter that deals with the resurrection, with the resurrection and we were surprised to learn maybe last week that though, that though this is dealing with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ here in the first 11 verses, that the purpose of this chapter is actually to convince the Corinthians that they will be raised again. In other words, they, they believe that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. They just didn't believe that they themselves would be raised from the dead. And we could say that the Corinthian church had been influenced by the culture and by popular ideas rather than understanding the significance. And we said what they, they understood that Christ was raised, they just didn't see the significance of it for themselves. And much like today, many people are in that same boat. Many believe if we believe, if we would believe evolution, then you don't have a soul and there's no afterlife. And certainly we had a group the Epicureans, who were exactly that. 
You live, you die, that's it. You could say the Sadducees, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. There was no life after death. And we always like to say it even, it never grows old for me because they were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so there was, there was always that group that didn't believe any, there was life after death at all. And we have that now. Then we had the other groups, who, like the Stoics, who, who believed that there was, uh, Im- the soul was immortal, but not the body. And so you, when a human being is born, there's a, a spark of divinity that comes down and it, it is in you. And then when you die, it goes back to, to the big flame, the big spirit. And you become, in essence, back to God again. Sounds a little familiar to some of the religions we have. We have reincarnation. You just keep going round and round. We have all of these things where, where, where there's immortality for the soul. But again, no physical body that ultimately comes. But Paul here is trying to correct that just like, and many in the church are, are, are convinced by that. Many in the world are convinced by that. But we need to understand, as Paul says, what does Scripture say? And Scripture says actually there is going to be a resurrection. And all will be resurrected. And that the physical body will ultimately be made into a new body, that we will have an eternal body, and everyone will get one. Not just believers, everyone will get one. And so Paul wants to correct this idea with the Corinthians, and he wants to make sure that they understand that there is a resur- physical resurrection for themselves. And it is predicated and it is necessary that Christ be raised for that to take place. And so that if they already believe that, then they should be able to believe that they will be resurrected. And so Paul, again, is going to, again, make an apologetic here, first of all, for the historical resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to make sure that they understand that Jesus Christ has been raised and he's going to give and we would say five witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and like any good teacher he's going to start with them with something that they agree with he's going to say you already because you've accepted the gospel already agree that Jesus Christ is raised And so he's going to, again, affirm in their mind the historical fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. And and if he's going to work off what they agree to the things that they need to know. And so he began last week, we saw in the first two verses, we saw really two witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection. We saw that, first of all, the first witness was the fact that there was a church. The fact that there was a church in Corinth. We could call it the witness of the church. And he says, I came to you and I preached the gospel. And I said, he said, I preached it to you. And we said that this is God's method of spreading the gospel. How shall faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And he says, I preached it to you. And you received it. In other words, you accepted it. You accepted it for what it was. And he says, you, you, you received it, you heard it, you stand on it, and you are being saved by it. In other words, you are being sanctified, and you, as you hold fast to it, as you hang on to the gospel that I preached to you, 
He says, you are being saved. You are being changed by it. And he says, listen, if you believed it, and the gospel I preached to you ultimately had the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have to believe what? That your existence shows that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ actually took place because you, you exist as a church believing that and being changed by it. And then he gives that warning, unless you believed in vain, there may be some of you who like the idea but have not really had a heart transplant but just have a mental assent to facts. And he says, unless you believe in vain, unless you actually truly didn't, maybe you're one of the soils that had the seed planted. Maybe there was a sprout. It looked like life, but no fruit came. And he says, there's still that possibility. So Paul says that first witness then is for those who what? That the, the witness is simply the fact that you exist as a church. You took the gospel you took the gospel with the resurrection as part of that gospel. Your lives have been transformed. Therefore, the resurrection took place. Then he gave us what we said was the witness of Scripture. And he says, For I delivered to you as first importance, this is the first important thing I gave to you, what I also received. In other words, I didn't make this up. And we saw how Paul had, had received the gospel from the, Lord, from the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day. Central to the gospel is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this phrase twice, according to the scriptures. And again, we looked at that and we realized that this is not speaking of the New Testament. This is primarily speaking of the Old Testament because this is at most, the third or fourth book written in the New Testament. We might have Galatians and James before the book of Matthew. If, if this book was written in 50, maybe Matthew is penning Matthew at about the same time. But the idea is this. They don't have the gospel witnesses of the New Testament like we do. And then we looked at that Old Testament text in, in Psalm 16.10 where he said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will I allow your Holy One to go under, go decay. In other words, this is a, a prophecy that was for Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And he says, I won't allow you to undergo decay. Well, the only way for a body not to go on decay when it's dead is to be what? Resurrected. And that's why he says in the next line, you will make known to me what the path of life. In other words, I'm going to be raised again. And so, again, the, the Old Testament speaks to the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ will be raised. We saw that again in, in Isaiah. He says, if he will render him a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. And then he says, not only will he see his offspring, he will what, prolong his days. In other words, he's going to live. Jesus will see his offspring. He will die but God will prolong his days. He will again live in the flesh. And so the Old Testament testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead. And if all scriptures get written by God and God is who cannot lie has written it in the Old Testament, 
then the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ must take place because God said it would take place. And if Jesus is not raised, then God is a liar because he said it would happen. And Paul kind of just says, guess what? This isn't new. This isn't something New Testament that we just made up. Hey, this, this sounds good. Paul says, I'm not, when, he, when, he, when he taught others, he said, I, I'm not giving you anything new. I'm just telling you what the prophets said. So the resurrection is not new. Well, that's just review. <laughs> Paul, Paul is going to now give us three more witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to give us th- three more witnesses uh, testimonies as you would say so that we would understand that Jesus Christ is raised now again he is not he is giving us this because he wants the Corinthians ultimately to recognize that they their resurrection depends on the Lord Jesus Christ their their salvation depends upon it and that they must recognize again the resur- the, what the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is. And again, he'll say later on, Christ is the first fruits. In other words, he's raised, then we are, will be raised. But before he gets here, he continues to give us testimonies to the, or witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins here and he gives us the witness of many, the witness of many. He's going to now come and give us that testimony of of those who are eyewitnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, throughout history, and if we look at the Old Testament, in order for someone to be convicted, again, you had to have the testimony of two or three. You wanted to make sure that just one person wasn't telling a lie, but it was an eyewitness who saw these things, and that was really the height of, of proof. Now, we didn't have DNA back then. We didn't have a lot of the things that we have. But for, in God's economy, the, uh, the eyewitness is, is, is sufficient to have someone convicted of a crime. And so as, as Paul comes here, he now says, here, here's a bunch of witnesses to demonstrate that Jesus Christ has been raised. In other words, we've got eyewitnesses that should be legally binding in court if we have enough witnesses. And so Paul, he does give us witnesses and he piles it on. In fact, he doesn't even give us all of the witnesses because he doesn't talk about the women who saw him at, at his gravesite. He doesn't tell he doesn't give us that one. You might say, "Well, Paul, after the stuff you said about women the other day, are you, are you back being a male chauvinist? Well, the answer to that is no. We would recognize that in, in the first century, a woman's word would not be held in court. So you're going to have, uh, you're going to have to have male um, testimony. And he, it is only part of the culture. So if you are, again, in that culture, you're going to only give proofs that people will accept. And so under the Holy Spirit, that's what Paul writes. And so Paul says, okay, I'm going I'm to give you 
enough witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that this should actually nail down the fact that he was raised. It should be indisputable, actually, because I'm going to give you quality and I'm going to give you quantity. I'm going to give you both. And by the time you're done, you should say there's no way that we can look back and say that Jesus Christ wasn't raised. Because if this many people can attest to his resurrection and this many people are willing to die for the fact that they believe that he is resurrected and in service for him, surely people will not die for a lie. And so he says, first of all, he appeared to Cephas. He appeared to Cephas. Now he's going to go sequentially here of the ones that he does give. And he says, he first he appeared to Cephas or Simon or to Peter, the rock, the pebble. It's really what his name means the pebble, and you're going to say, Pastor, I want you to show me the scripture where God appeared to Simon. Do you guys remember when he appeared to Simon in the conversation that they had? No, you don't. <clears throat> because we don't have a, we don't actually don't have a record of that incident. All we know is that in some time between Christ being raised from the dead and the time that the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus with him, met up with the twelve, he was seen by Simon. So somewhere in that, in, that, in that early part, when Christ was raised, he appeared to Simon. We don't actually have a, a record of it. We don't have what, what Jesus said to him. But the first thing that he did, first testimony he gives is Simon. In Luke 24, 34, it records the disciples from Emmaus coming to the, tw- to the disciples. So in some place, he appeared to Peter first. Now, you're thinking, why would he appear to Peter first? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But we kind of have the idea, who was Peter? Peter was the leader of the disciples. Peter had just denied Christ three times. Who else needs to be affirmed? Who else needs to recognize who Jesus Christ is? And who else needs to be set in place? Because he is going to be the leader in Jerusalem, the leader of the disciples, and going to be used by God. And it would appear that he appears to Peter because Peter is strategic and Peter is, is, is one who needs it. And almost in a sense of mercy that he comes to Peter first. And so he will be the man that God uses in the early church, especially in Jerusalem, to impact that church. And so Peter, once filled with the Holy Spirit, will be indomitable and powerful because Peter believed in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He believed it. It says, then he he appeared to the twelve. And again, this term is is used in a general way because we often know like the, he appeared to the disciples. Well, first of all, Judas is gone, right? There are times where Thomas isn't there. And so he's using it in a general term, the 12. He's talking, the, he appears to the apostles. Sometimes there was 11. And God appears to them. And so he says, here, here is Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, 
appearing to them. John 20, verse 19, in the same day, it being night, the disciples were in the upper room and the door was shut and Jesus appeared to them and said, peace be to you. So there's Jesus Christ in his resurrected body. He's walking through walls, something we have to look forward to. I don't know how what the walls are made out of in, in heaven, but he, he, he comes in their midst. Now there's only 11 again there. But Jesus appears to them and he testifies to his resurrection. And so here he is and God, Jesus is now appearing to what, if you're a believer, you would understand to be really the apex of Christian leadership. Here are the apostles who have spent all their life with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are his inner circle. And they, will, they are now having Christ appear to them. And they are now believing in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And their lives will be transformed. And most of them, except for John, will be martyred in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it would seem odd that you would get a group of men who would come together after Jesus' death and decide, we're gonna make up, uh, we're gonna make up a lie. We're gonna just make up a lie and we're just gonna say that he was resurrected and we're gonna go around preaching this and we're all gonna die for it. Not really something you sign up unless you believe it, right? And so you've gotta assume, you would at least think that at least one guy would come to a census and say, this doesn't make sense but they were all willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ because they believed in his resurrection. And so Paul pulls out some pretty heavy-duty witnesses and he says, look at them. These are Christ's inner circle and they believed it. But at this point you might say, well, of course, of course. We know that people die for faith other than Christianity and these guys were his inner circle they were brainwashed maybe you think they're quality but I just think that they're been drinking the Kool-Aid too long so you would expect you would expect those who are indoctrinated it to, to go with it right well Paul says well you might not believe the inner circle, but I guess what? These might be quality men, but I'm going to give you quantity. I'm going to give you quantity. And so he says in verse 56, and after, he appeared to, after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Now that's, that's a lot of people. He says, I, he appeared to 500 people at one time, 500 believers. When he says brethren there, he's not just talking about males. He's talking about those who are believers. And he says he appeared to 500 of them. Now, again, do you remember where that was in Scripture, where he met those 500? Well, that's good because it wasn't, it's not in Scripture, right? Where it, the, the incident, again, is not recorded for us. But Paul says, actually, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So it's about 20, 25 years later. This is written around 50, 55 AD. It's 25 years later, as he writes Corinthians after Christ's death. 
It's about 25 years later. And he says, most of them are still alive. Most of them will attest to you at this moment. Most, if you ask them, they will say they have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some have fallen asleep. Some are dead. And again, we talk about that word sleep for believers because sleep is a temporary repose, right? You lay down, you sleep, you wake up, and you go on. And for the believer, that's what death is. We sleep, our bodies go in the grave, our souls go to heaven, we're resurrected, our bodies are, are back with, our glorified bodies are back with our soul. And it's just a temporary thing that our bodies are in the grave. So he says, here's 500 people. It's hard to argue down 500 people who say they all saw the same thing. One maybe, two maybe, maybe even the t- 12 disciples. But here's 500 500 people have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, how many people did you need for the Old Testament law? Two or three. Well, we've got 497 extra, right? God is not leaving himself without testimony. He is declaring very clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. Paul says, go check it out. You know that he's alive. These people attest to it. To call them all liars is absurd. Why would 500 people be willing to perpetrate a lie? He says, go check it out. Then he continues on. He's not done. Then he appeared to James, then the apostles. He says, then he appears to James. Now, he doesn't say the apostle James. He just says James. So we have three three men this could be. We have two disciples. One, James, the son of Zebedee. The other, the son of Alphaeus. But most commentators would understand this to be Jesus' brother. He doesn't say the Apostle James, he just says James. And we remember James. Here's a brother who what, did not believe. In fact, they came to take Jesus away because they thought he had lost his mind. They were trying to protect him. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, it would appear that Jesus appeared to his half-brother, and, and to, to demonstrate who he was and that he was raised. And we know this, James became a believer, right? And he writes in James that he, is, he calls his half-brother now the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls him the Lord of glory. He now recognizes him for who he is. And James will have a massive ministry in the Jerusalem church and he will write a book to those who are scattered abroad because of persecution in Acts chapter 12. And James witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ and he believed. Now, some of the hardest people to reach and convince are your family, right? Because... You know, they say an expert is someone from a different town. 
try being, you're not an expert in your own house, right? You're, that's too close. And yet James saw the Lord Jesus Christ and we see his transformed life. What a testimony to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, then he appeared to the apostles. Again, he's not saying James is a part of that group. He says, then the apostles. Then this other group, he again appeared to the apostles. And Christ, in Acts, we see three times that he appeared to his disciples. Three times he, he met with them as a group. And so Paul marshals all of these eyewitnesses in a time where eyewitness testimony was the was the top testimony that you could have. And he marshals them out and he says, look at them all. You've got men and women who have witnessed, eyewitnessed, give testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They are willing to die. Their testimony is consistent. And he says, how can legally in court you would have to say what he is risen. And so Paul says, look at the witness of many. They have all witnessed to the fact that he has been risen. And it would be impossible to argue that they were all wrong. It would be really a psychological absurdity to think that people, this many people, will be willing to die for something that was false. And yet, they were willing to do that. And the dramatic change in these people's lives would indicate that they truly believed what they saw. Well, Paul really is done giving witnesses except for one more, and I would call this the witness of Paul. And really, this is a different type of witness. Because to some degree, what we've seen so far is we've got people in the fold, right? We've got people who we would expect would accept the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got the apostles who've been following him. We've got 500 people who have already, brethren who are already believers, who when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ, are ready to accept that. They're ready to accept the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised. They have been, uh, again, had their eyes open and they would recognize. They're not hostile to that truth. But our next witness is not like that at all. Our next witness is the Apostle Paul. And he says, And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now we remember that Paul was on the, was on the road to Damascus to evangelize, right? Not exactly. He was on the road to Damascus, what? He was persecuting Christians. Right? He had stood there when Stephen was stoned. He held the coats so that the people could throw more rocks. And so he is on there breathing out persecution on the road, and then Christ appears to him in a blinding light and says, Paul, who are you? It's me, Jesus Christ. Right? He appears to him, and he now 
converts Paul. Paul is not looking for Jesus Christ. He's hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows exactly who Jesus Christ is proclaiming to be. Now remember, unbelievers can understand the facts of the gospel and they understand exactly what's being said. Jesus had claimed that he was the Jewish Messiah and that he was dying for sins and that you must believe in him. And he demonstrated it with power, with miracles, all of those things. And Paul knew exactly what Christ was claiming. And that's why he hated him. That didn't fit with Judaism. It didn't fit with his idea of who the Messiah should be. The Messiah needed to be a conqueror. He needed to be a king, not someone who would die meekly on a cross. And that's why he hated his followers. We need to stamp out this false religion. He was hostile. And so Paul says, I I was one that was untimely born. It's literally, I was an abortion is is the term here. And so it's it's a little hard to know what what he's saying here because abortions tend to be premature. But he's saying there's a sense in which I was an ugly, unformed life form before I was saved. I hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I was saved, but I was saved after the Lord Jesus Christ was already dead. I shouldn't be an apostle because guess what? You had to see the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. He's already dead, raised, ascended. And so he says, I, 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 I was untimely born. And yet he says, he also appeared to me also. And we, he, we saw that on the road to Damascus that the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul and he saved him. And so Paul says, I was untimely born. I I should have never, ever been saved. I should have never actually been an apostle. He says, he appeared, he appeared last of all, Last of all, as to one untimely board, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of all the apostles. Now, the reality, he's not in, in this fact. He was an apostle. He had all, the same authority of all of them. But this is Paul's view of himself. And he says, I'm the least of them. I'm the least worthy. I shouldn't be an apostle. He said, I'm the least and not fit to be called an apostle. I'm not worthy. I I don't have the qualification. I really shouldn't be in any way an apostle. I'm not, he says, and I'm not, I just not fit. And he says, I'm not fit because I persecuted the church of God. He says, the other apostles spent three and a half years with Christ and they were taught by Christ and they went out and shared the gospel. But me, no, I spent my time persecuting the very ones whom Jesus Christ found precious. I persecuted his church, the church for which he died. And Paul never forgot in his humility what he had done. And he says, how can, I, how can I be called an apostle? How can I be one to take that name? He says, I, I am the one who persecuted the church. I'm not worthy. But, 
he says. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And Paul says, in spite of all of that, in spite of the fact that I, I am the least of all and the fact that I persecuted the church, guess what? By God's grace, I am what I am. In other words, by God's grace, he's the one who saved me. I wasn't looking for him. I was, I was going in the exact opposite. I hated him. I wanted nothing to do with him. But he says, his grace came upon me. He called me to salvation. He changed my heart. And he says, now I'm a believer and now I'm an apostle. Why? Because of God's grace. It had nothing to do with me. And so Paul says, it's God's grace. He's the one who saved me. He's the one who made me apostle. He's the one who set his love upon me so that I might see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and now attest to that. And he said, and his grace did not, towards me did not prove vain. It wasn't fruitless is the idea. In other words, he, he put his grace upon me, but it wasn't fruitless. It didn't, have, it didn't come back void. But I labored even more than all of them. He said, rather than it being vain, in contrast to that, I labored with more effort than everyone else. He's saying, I, I labored, the idea here is to labor to the point of exhaustion. It's also used for getting a beating. It's the way you feel after you get a beating. In other words, you don't feel so good. You're, you're, you're spent. And he said, I spent myself more than anyone else in, 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 the, in laboring for God. He said, I, I labored more than all the apostles. I did it to the point of exhaustion more than anyone else. My labor left me more exhausted than anyone else. Wow, Paul, that seems kind of a little bit uh, bragging, isn't it? I, uh, I labored more than all. Well, no, that's not Paul's point. Yet, not I, but the grace of God with me. In other words, my ministry and everything that I accomplished and all the effort that I put out and leaving me exhausted was because of the grace of God. And that's what he's pointing to. I am what I am by the grace of God. And anything that I accomplished in laboring for the gospel was because of the grace of God. It's his grace that enabled me is the idea. It came along and helped me. It assisted me. In other words, nothing that I did was because of me. It was all because of grace. Maybe there's a lesson there for us, right? We think, man alive, I, I've been teaching Sunday school for 10 years. I've been laboring hard. And Paul says, guess what? Everything that you've accomplished all the effort that you feel, the exhaustion you feel is ultimately only allowed by the grace of God. Whatever you have accomplished in any kind of ministry, it is not because of your greatness, but because of God's grace. 
So he receives all the glory and he receives all the praise. So Paul says, yet, not I. It wasn't me. It was the grace of God that allowed me to be that way. Even my faithfulness is ultimately by his grace. There's nothing to brag about. And so Paul says, look, look at me. I wasn't one of those inner circle guys. I wasn't one of the greater people who were converted in the great bigger church. I was hostile, hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ, hostile to Christians, hostile to the church. And yet I stand as a testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ because he appeared to me and my life. Look at my life. A hostile person taken over by the grace of God, recognizing and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, here's a witness. Here's a proof of the Lord Jesus Christ. Me. Look at me. Hostile, but made willing by the grace of God. So we've seen here this morning, first of all, the witness of many. We've seen the witness of Paul. And then I just want to see this in verse 11. The witness of a consistent message. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He says simply this. It didn't really matter who preached, right? The the idea is we preached what? We preached this gospel. We preached this gospel that contained what? The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says there's a testimony and a witness here because the message was the same. Everyone came out saying the same. It didn't matter if I did it or someone else preached it. The message was always the same. And he says, how much more of a witness to the, te- to the fact of our Lord Jesus Christ being raised that no one, no one left it out. Everyone thought it was part of the gospel. Everybody believed it and everybody taught it. And then he says, so we preached, so you believed. In other words, you believed it. That same consistent gospel was given to all of you and all of you believed it. And he says, the fact is that we're giving you the same gospel tells you what? It must be true, right? If it was being left out and some were giving some and some not, but he says, no, we all did it. And so we have again, a witness to the consistency of the message. we would call it the uniformity of common faith, right? The uniformity of common faith and and, and a common testimony. And so he says, you believed, you believed. And so Paul says, listen, remember, 
remember the historical fact of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. He has been raised from the dead. You already believe that. You already believe that there's life after death. You already believe that someone has been raised physically. Now, will it be so hard for you to believe that you too will be raised? But first Paul says, here's the foundation of Christianity. If Christ not be raised, you are still in your sins. And so he says, I want you to be firm in your understanding and truly believe and recognize that Jesus Christ is risen. He says, now if Christ is preached by all of us that he rose from the dead, how come some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul says, see the implication? Why are you saying that? Of course there's resurrection of the dead because Jesus Christ is raised. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness. We thank you for its clarity. And I praise and thank you that you have not left yourself without testimony. And that Paul here has laid out these five witnesses to the historical fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is raised. And I praise and thank you that we can be confident that he is risen and that we serve a living Savior. And so we want to praise and honor him today to the praise of the glory of your grace, I pray. Amen.